Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I am today joined by Benjamin Schobert who has just completed a book called Blaming China. It might feel good, but it won't fix America's economy. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. What gave you the idea? I think the title almost gives it away. <laughs> but what gave you the idea for, um, for writing this book? Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, the uh, misadventures in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and then watching what I um, would characterize as a completely um, disproportionate response to President Obama's administration. Uh, there seemed to be a level of political dysfunction in the United States that was um, fundamentally out of characteristic in the post-World War II era, and the closest analog would have been in the period up to the Civil War. And unlike uh, then, uh, it seemed to me that right now we had a uh, a couple of anxieties that we were walking around with, an economic anxiety, a political anxiety, um, anxiety over our place in the world, and this just underlying feeling of not being secure. And the only country that I felt could actually carry the burden <laughs> where all three, all four of those anxieties would be perverted and projected onto was China. So generated kind of by events in the United States and then realizing that kind of the scapegoat, so to speak, right. is going to be is going to be China. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you take a step back and you look at what the current administration has tapped into, it's it's not just this pervasive economic insecurity that Americans are walking around with, but it's a sense that China is somehow the root cause of that. And in the book, my assertion is that China is actually not the proximal cause of that. It's an embrace of a particular type of what I characterize as free market fundamentalism. And in fairness, it's a political um, and economic orthodoxy that the Democrats and Republicans have embraced for a good part of the last 30 years. And the consequences of embracing globalization, not just in terms of our relationship with China, but our relationship towards to India, and this uh, political orthodoxy that said uh, people, in particular the middle class, the blue-collar workers, and where I grew up in Indiana, will retrain, they will move, they will find new industries where they can employ themselves. Those all betrayed a particular type of political orthodoxy that in the context of massive structural changes to the global economy uh, left them unequipped to adapt. And so right now, uh, what the current administration has done is directed most of those anxieties towards an outside actor, which I would argue, and I do argue in the book, is consistent with how previous eras of relative stability um, have unwound themselves. That's convenient, but it's a really, really cheap answer to a very expensive question, which is how is the United States, given the current high technology economy and the complexities that are captured within it, how does the United States actually become competitive uh, for the next 20, 30 years? That to me is the much more interesting, probative, and challenging set of questions that I don't think our political system is set up to address. But it, you argue in the book that it's not fact-based. That's right. And, 
That's right. Yeah, I, I don't believe that when you actually get underneath the hood and you look at what is the structural cause of America's economic anxieties, it goes back to China. Right. I think if anything, you could argue that China's participation in the global economy has allowed the particular type of free market fundamentalism America is governed by to be extended even longer because cost of capital has stayed very low, cost of living, you know, what people have characterized as the Walmart effect, mm -hmm. have allowed people to perceive their, their quality of life as not going in reverse. When now, it's, it's common, commonly accepted wisdom that when you look at cost of living and you look at things like healthcare spending, social services spending, cost of education, the American middle class effectively hasn't had a pay raise since the late 70s. That's not China. If anything, China has made that problem not as obvious to voters. Mm -hmm. By keeping costs By down. By keeping costs down. That's right. And since it's not fact-based, in other words, the, like you, you, you have these funny, interesting few chapters, one on the, the panda huggers and the dragon slayers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, with the dragon slayer saying we've lost all these millions of jobs to China, even though it's very difficult to point to evidence that we've lost enormous numbers of jobs right. to China. Have we lost jobs to China? Certainly. Absolutely. Is it, is it anywhere near the numbers that they mm -hmm. say? Absolutely not. Um, so what do we do about it? Yeah, so that's actually the question that um, I'm wrestling with the most right now. Because when you take the Trump administration's position towards China, um, ostensibly there are people who say, listen, you know, this for a long time, this conversation with China has needed to happen. And this kind of authoritative, firm, you know, almost bullying like action is necessary. And, and my underlying conviction, and Danny Roderick in his new book makes this point really well, is that we don't need a trade war, we need a subsidy war. Now that's that's rhetor that's a rhetorical flourish, mm -hmm. but the underlying point there is that if if unless the United States gets really serious about trying to make sure that investment strategies, what we have to acknowledge is industrial policy, is organized around what our best thinkers believe are the industries of the future, um, we're unlikely to be competitive. We also are going to have to have some really hard conversations that I don't think have anything to do with the U.S.-China relationship. That are purely oriented around uh, things in the United States that we don't like to talk about, like tax policy, uh, which I would argue uh, have much more to do with the underlying economic inequalities that are pervasive that lead to an anxious American mm -hmm. middle class, blue collar workforce. Those are the much harder conversations to have. And I would, I would say that even the Trump administration is unwilling to actually knock on those doors. And that's where the real return on investment is going Can to be. Can the Chinese government fix this? What I think I hear you saying is no, this is no. about an anxiety. No. So the I, Chinese I mean, government I mean, can't adopt the, policies the, that no, can fix No, it's, it's a great question. I mean, there are certainly things that the Chinese government should do. And, and my book nowhere uh, presupposes that the Chinese have this all figured out or that they're not legitimate grievances that the United States has with China. There are issues on IPR, cybersecurity, market access that are purely commercial in nature. And then there are really pervasive questions that go to the heart of significant philosophical differences in our two political systems, which are not trivial. The Chinese government could certainly and should uh, make changes that affect things around market access and IP, cyber. These are real conversations. They're hard conversations. And the Chinese government should respond positively to that. But that, I argue, is asymmetric to the structural changes and the impact that they, these changes would have in the United States. So it's much easier 
to focus on changes we want China to make, when in reality the things that would actually act as structural stabilizers to the U.S. political economy are things entirely within our control. This is an anxiety that's not fact-based. And it also, the U.S. economy is doing really well. Our unemployment, you, the problem is not unemployment. The problem is finding qualified workers. It's down to, what, 3.7%? Perhaps. I mean, I think if you actually unpack those numbers and you look at uh, wage growth and the percentage of, Ameri of, of the American workforce that's working in minimum wage, less than full-time jobs, um, I think the underlying numbers are not as quite as robust, and they haven't been for some time. And this is, you know, frankly, this is one of the conservative criticisms of the re economic recovery under Obama, which was that it was not a widely shared um, labor participation was coming down. Um, and I would argue that a lot of that is still very much a characteristic mm -hmm. of this current economy. And, and also inequality continues to be an underlying structural problem in the U.S. So the answers are really in U.S fixing their own home and a U.S. leadership, leadership that basically relies on the best and the brightest to come up with solutions to these issues. That's right. I don't think we, uh, I don't think we get tariffs as the solution to these problems. I think we have to innovate uh, and outthink and focus on what a productive and useful domestic political conversation about what we need to be doing here is where we need to get started. But that is much, much harder than blaming China. What's the downside of blaming China? War. Do you think it could get so bad that we actually slip into a conflict with yeah, China? Yeah, you know, Nassim Taleb in the um, Financial Times shortly after the 2008 financial crisis wrote something that has haunted me since I read it. He was talking about the fact that in the immediate aftermath, we more or less turned the keys to the global economy over to the same people who had crashed the car. <laughs> And the phrase that he used was, a, um, we were all guilty of a tragic failure of imagination. And in the context of a Republican president who is uh, arguably the, a populist candidate, the first true presidential populist that we've had in 100 years, who is openly hostile to globalization, to what would be characterized for most of the last 40 years as underlying economic convictions that were specific to the Republican Party. And we have a Democratic Party that is actually advocating or trying to protect the status quo of the <laughs> globalization. The idea that there is not a possible future where the United States, in a moment of just extraordinary political dysfunction, and I argue it has to be not just political dysfunction, but also economic anxieties that are captured in a moment of, of another crisis. The alignment of those things I do think makes possible the kind of conflict that we assume is in our rearview mirror. And I would argue every generation that has had some sort of great power conflict thought that they were in some way different, that in some way they had structural stabilizers that made conflict between their counterpart in the, uh, improbable and unlikely. We are no different. To think that we're different is hubris. This conversation has given our listeners a taste of what blaming China, it might feel good, but it won't fix, Amer fix America's economy is. It is a thought-provoking read. I recommend it to all. Uh, ben, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it, Steve.